your word together, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. My message tonight is entitled, All People Are Before the Face of God. And we're going to look at Hosea chapter 7 together. We've been looking at this case study of a rebellious people, along with the love of God and the call to return to him. You remember that Hosea ministered to the northern kingdom for around 40 years. Uh, Idolatry, spiritual failure, moral corruption, it was everywhere among the people. So what God did was God sent a message of judgment, uh, but with it he sent a message of hope that people could come to him. And we've looked at this marriage of Hosea and Gomer uh, essentially as a a symbol of the relationship between God and and his people. Uh, God's message was that he was offended because of the unfaithfulness and the spiritual adultery of his people. And ultimately, he would send Jesus as the deliverer, as the bridegroom, who would deliver his wife, the church. And the call in Hosea chapter 6 that we looked at the last time that we were in this study in verse 1 is, come and let us return to the Lord. This call to come back and return to the Lord was a call to turn back in repentance. And if the people would come back in repentance, they would be restored, they would receive eternal life, and they would know God. So Hosea's uh, faithfully giving this message to the people to turn back to the Lord. Judgment was deserved, but the mercy of God stood ready to receive and to restore his people. Now, part of that turning back was a turning back from sin. It was a repentance uh, from sin. You can't put on righteousness unless you put off sin. And what God is looking for is God is looking for consecrated hearts and a people with genuine faith. So I want to pick up reading here in chapter 7 and read the first uh, three verses as we get started. When I would have healed Israel, uh, then the iniquity of Ephraim was uncovered and the wickedness of Samaria. For they have committed fraud, a thief comes in, a band of robbers takes spoil outside. They do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their own deeds have surrounded them. They are before my face. Verse 3, they make a king glad with their wickedness and princes with their lies. Now I think the main point here is found in verse 2. Their own deeds have surrounded them, and their actions are before the face of God. Nothing is hidden in the sight of God. The people disregarded the moral character of God by failing to realize that he was carefully noticing their sin. Their sins had completely surrounded them, and it will be easy to see what God is saying about these people for us. But the question is, What might God be saying to us through this passage of Scripture? How do we compare? Because not only was God not blind to their sin, God is not blind to our sin. Sin had become rampant. Uh, Israel's heart was hardened because of what they were doing, and they lost their conscience toward God and toward people. Now, Hosea chapter 7 is a chapter of comparisons. And what God does here in this chapter is he draws comparisons between Israel and some different symbols of daily life that would have been familiar to the people. Each of the symbols illustrate the sad moral and spiritual condition of the people. And each of the symbols has a life application for us today 
as well. The first symbol is that of a baker. The first symbol is a baker. We pick back up reading in verse 4, they are all adulterers, like an oven heated by a baker. He ceases stirring the fire after kneading the dough until it is leavened. In the day of our king, princes have made him sick, uh, inflamed with wine. He stretched out his hand uh, with scoffers. They prepare their heart like an oven while they lie in wait. Their baker sleeps all night, and in the morning it burns uh, like a flaming fire. They are all hot like an oven and have devoured their judges. All their kings have fallen. None, of them, none among them calls upon me. So he says here, Israel is like a baker. Now we read about uh, bakers a couple of times in the Bible, the first time being back in the book of Genesis. You'll remember that the Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and baker did something that offended him. We don't know exactly what it was. Perhaps it was a plot to overthrow the Pharaoh. It was a threat to the throne, maybe. But whatever it was, they ended up in prison. And they had committed some uh, perceived crime against their leader. Now, the Pharaoh had absolute power, and the cupbearer and the baker had no recourse. After they had been in custody for a while, each of them had a dream. It happened on the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. The next morning, Joseph came to them and asked them what was wrong. So they tell Joseph that they had dreams, but there's no one to interpret the dream. Now remember, Pharaoh had a whole contingency of people who supposedly could interpret dreams, but they weren't accessible uh, to these two men. So Joseph replies that interpretations belong to God. God will interpret their dreams. God was fully in control. Now, the interpretation of these dreams uh, was contrasting. The cupbearer would be restored to his job in Pharaoh's court. The outcome for the baker was going to be totally different. The three baskets that he saw represented three days, but unlike the cupbearer, the baker would be hanged and his body impaled on a pole and birds would eat his flesh. One restored and one hanged. Now, I think Hosea's baker is only symbolic. But in this symbolic illustration, we're given a look behind the scenes and the people are presented as a bunch of murderers. Uh, who hatch a plot against their king and kill him. Now, what's interesting about this is that within a period of about 20 to 25 years, there were at least six different kings on Israel's throne. Rule would pass from one king to the next, but it would not pass peacefully. It would always pass with violence. In fact, each king was killed by his successor, who in turn was murdered by another. Uh, one lasted only six months and another one lasted only a month. So you ask, what's the connection here with a baker? Well, I think the similarity lies within their willingness to wait. Just like bakers, the plotters would wait just for the right time to carry out their plans. And it was only when the king was vulnerable that they would make their move. A baker in a hurry doesn't have patience to wait for the yeast to rise or for the leaven to work or for the dough to be fully cooked. And then uh, waiting is an important part of making that bread. 
So what he's doing is he's comparing the hatred of the people to the heat of the baker's oven. And what Hosea tells us is ultimately a foreshadowing of the cross. Now, it's a, it's a slight foreshadowing at this point, but if you want to look at the buildup of this, just as Israel always killed the prophets and slaughtered the kings, so it also did not spare the greatest prophet of all and the greatest king of all in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what Hosea is talking about is he's talking about the sins of the people and the hatred and the murder and the anger that smoldered in their hearts. So we ask ourselves the question, is this something that is smoldering in our hearts? Could this be a comparison to us as well, that we're not guided by righteousness, we're not driven by the peace of God, but rather we're driven by the same things that they were? And what was symbolized here was a falling away because of the condition of their hearts. The second symbol is a cake. We'll go a little further down this cooking illustration here, but we'll pick back up reading in uh, verse 8. Ephraim has mixed himself among the peoples. Ephraim is a cake unturned. Aliens have devoured his strength, but he does not know it. Yes, gray hairs are here and there on him, yet he does not know it. And the pride of Israel testifies to his face, but they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. So Israel is compared here uh, to being like a cake that the baker forgot to turn over. Now, don't think a big birthday cake or a big wedding cake here. The kind of cake that he's referring to would have been more like flatbread. It would have been more like a, a pancake or uh, probably more like a pita, like a flatbread type thing that would have been cooked. Now, what would happen if something like that is not turned over while it's cooking? What's going to happen is it's going to be burned on one side and the other side is not going to be done. It's going to be a half-baked cake that is good for nothing. And a burnt cake is worse than no cake at all because you just want to spit it out. And the point is, although the kingdom was quite strong politically and militarily, the people were quite weak morally and spiritually speaking. Now, I think there's a strong parallel here that no matter how strong we might be in our nation, politically, economically, uh, and so on, militarily, if we're not strong spiritually and morally, it's not going to be of any eternal value. So we got to be sure that our priorities are in the right place. And it says here in the same verses that we just read that Ephraim, which is a symbol for uh, Israel, a reference to Israel, mixes with the nations. Now, what was the problem? Well, you remember from the beginning when God promised them that they were going to receive the land that he was going to give to them. And part of the deal in the covenant that he made with them was that they were to maintain themselves as a pure people and they were to go in and they were not to mix with the false worship of the people who were there. They weren't to get mixed up in all that nonsense. They were to stay with their allegiance toward God. He didn't want them to mix 
with darkness, spiritually speaking. They were supposed to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to be a kingdom of light in the midst of darkness. They were supposed to represent God to the world. But the problem was they became like the nations that they were mixing with. And what they did was they abandoned the laws and the commandments that were meant by the Lord to keep them separate and different. And effectively, what the result was, was that they were, they were burnt on one side, they were well done on one side, and they were cold and half-baked on the other. I Israel, on the one hand, is supposed to be the people of God, but on the other hand, they're just like the world. On the one hand, you've got the kingdom of heaven, and then you've got this earthly kingdom, and there was confusion between the two. And what this reminds us of is that we are prone to succumbing to the sin that is around us. We are not immune to this, that we can become just like the people around us. Remember, I mentioned even as I began tonight, how so many churches have just drifted and the strategy was, hey, we're just going to become like the world. We're going to adopt what the world thinks about life. We're going to adopt what the world thinks about human sexuality. We're going to adopt what the world thinks about families. And then what do you got? You don't have anything. You got disaster. You got spiritual darkness where it's all dark rather than the light affecting the darkness. And that was the circumstance that Israel was in. The third symbol is a dove. It's a dove. Pick back up reading in verse 11. Ephraim also is like a silly dove without sense. Uh, they call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. Uh, wherever they go, I will spread my net on them. Uh, I will bring them down like birds of the air. I will chastise them according to what their congregation has heard. Woe to me, or woe to them, for they have fled from me. Destruction to them because they have transgressed against me. Though I redeemed them, yet they have spoken lies against me. Now this is an interesting symbol here because dove are uh, fairly easily deceived. Uh, if you get a box and you prop one end up and you've got some corn or something else that might be appealing to them, uh, then you can easily woo them into the box. Uh, and the people being represented here had no moral compass so therefore, they were easily deceived. And by the way, I think that's one of the problems in the church today is that people are easily deceived because there is a biblical illiteracy. And not only because there's a biblical illiteracy, but there's also uh, a hardness of heart toward the Bible that people know. So both are effectively just as dangerous because if people don't know the truth and they're not being discipled and they're not in the word and they don't have uh, an anchor for their lives. They're going to be pulled into anything and they're going to be sucked into the culture and agree with things that they shouldn't be agreeing with. Or if their consciences have been seared or their hearts are hard, they're just going to deny what they know because the crowd is not agreeing with it. You get marginalized if you actually hold to the things that the Bible holds to. And all of a sudden you find yourself being easily deceived rather than flying a straight course and following the Lord. Israel was like a confused bird. They were flitting back and forth between Egypt and Assyria for their security. How foolish could they be? They, they were looking to these superpowers, Egypt to the south and Assyria to the north. Israel thought that the sensible thing to do was to be friendly with both. And 
any political or military move that didn't take the Lord into account was going to be doomed to failure for them, and there would be no help or security in pagan powers. You see, the bottom line was they trusted in people more than they trusted in God. And in the end, the Lord allowed his people to be entrapped by their own stupidity, like a bird that was flying into a net or a bird that was flying into a trap. Assyria would conquer them and Egypt would mock them. You see, God is a jealous God and he will not stand by and do nothing when his people look elsewhere for their hope, when his people look elsewhere for their deliverance. So the question for us that resounds, that's loud, it's like a It's like a megaphone to us in the church in this moment. Who is our trust in or in whom is our trust? Who are we focusing on as our answer? Psalm 146 and verse 3 says, Put not your trust in princes, in the son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. So what was God saying to them? Listen, if you put your focus and your trust in a human being, he's going to die and they're going to bury him. And all his plans are going to perish with him. That's the record of the nations. That's the record of the tapestry of history. But yet when your hope is in the Lord, when you look to the God of Jacob for your help and your trust is in him, then that's where it should be. What are we trusting in? Do we really live as though we believe this world is passing away? 1 John 2 and verse 17 says, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Are we looking to earthly resources rather than to the Lord for our security and our strength? The fourth symbol is a bow. Verse 14, they did not cry out to me with their heart when they wailed upon their beds. They assembled together for grain and new wine. They rebel against me. Though I disciplined and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not to the most high, They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword for the cursings of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Now, you know, if you know anything about the Psalms, that Psalm 127 is the image of a bow and arrow, which describes uh, a godly family. But let me just tell you, in Hosea, the image of a bow is not a compliment. The image is used to illustrate a downward spiritual spiral, and a spiritual focus that misses the mark. In fact, they were like a faulty bow. They were meant to be a weapon in the hands of God. They were meant to be used by God as a light for righteousness. And a faulty bow is one that is crooked and untrue and undependable. If you shoot with a crooked bow, you're going to miss the mark every time. That's the point. They missed the spiritual and moral target that God had set up for them. Now, we're called to be in the Lord's army. We are uh, weapons, in a sense, in the hands of Almighty God. 
But are we faulty bows like ancient Israel was? They claimed to be the people of God, but yet they were off target with their lives and they disgraced the name of the Lord. Or do we stand firm in the battle? Do we hang in when it's tough? Or are we desensitized by our sin? Now I want to make this final point as I come toward uh, conclusion of tonight's sermon. God longs to redeem his people. He longs to redeem his people. You see, God gave Israel every benefit of the doubt and opportunities again and again to forgive and to restore them. That was the heart of God, and that is the heart of God for people today. You understand, God is, God is building a family from every tribe, tongue, and nation. There's going to be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered around the throne of God in heaven. That is the sovereign will of God. And the call of the gospel is what is bringing people in so that they might know him and be a part of his family. And it's our privilege to be a part of that. That's our mission as the church, that we would be a part of seeing God redeem people, rescue them, and save them from their sin. That's the hope. That's the promise. So what are we about when we come before the face of God? Are we a people who are pleasing in his sight? Who are faithful? Are we like these symbols that we find here of ancient Israel? I pray that God would find us faithful. Let's bow our heads together. Father, your word is true. Your kingdom is eternal. Your plans are unchanging. And you've blessed us to be a part of your family, a part of your work, a part of making known the gospel to the ends of the earth. Help us to look to you for our hope and find it in none other. Remind us constantly that you are the unchanging God, and to you alone do we owe our allegiance. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us, even at times when we're not on track as we should be. Help this church to be the kind of church that is faithful and looks to you for our strength and for our direction. Uh, Lord, uh, bless us as we go through the remainder of this week and as we uh, desire to make you known and to represent you well. Help us to give a good testimony in that. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all again for being with us, and I look forward to seeing you on Sunday, in person or online. And uh, the Lord, may he continue to bless us as we move forward in these challenging times.